Church here, a very warm welcome to you. Whether it's your first time or your hundredth time with us, it's great to have you here. If you've got a Bible, could you go to, to John chapter 19, please? John chapter 19. Let me explain kind of where we've got to and what we're doing. First thing, on your chair you should find a leaflet that looks like this. It's a colourful double-sided leaflet. Um, last week, um, the beginning of sort of 2015, I laid out some kind of plans that we felt God had spoken to us about as a church where we're going. If you miss that, please get the download. It's on our website. You can do it. And this little leaflet kind of are the notes for the sermon, some odd things that God had said to us about coming and getting from him, but also going and showing and displaying his kind of his love and his glory to the people around us. So if you haven't caught up with the sermon, please listen to that an important one that sort of sets the vision, the direction for us for the year and that leaflet on your chair. Take that home. Use that to sort of, as you listen to the sermon, think about, pray about, give you an idea of where we're going. But this morning, we're going in John chapter 19. This time last year, being in 2014, we set out, we wanted to preach through the gospel of John. That was one of our kind of things we wanted to do, asking this question, who is this man, finding a bit about Jesus. We, we didn't quite make it through the year. We had a few bits left over. So for the next three weeks, I'm going to basically round out John. And we will finish, and we'll say we have preached through the entire gospel of John. If you missed any of them, the sermon's online. You can go back and get to it. And we've got to the beginning of chapter 19. The story so far, Jesus, God the Son, has come to earth He's lived on the earth and he has done some things. He's, he's proclaimed the good news. He's demonstrated that. He's made these great statements about who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, etc., etc. And we're now coming to the end of his life, the end of his earthly life. And he has had the, um, the last sort of, uh, the, the last supper with his disciples. He's washed their feet in that great act of humility as a model for us and teaching us something about who, how God kind of interacts with us. And he's done that last block of teaching teaching in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 about him, about the Holy Spirit, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Then he's prayed for us in John chapter 17, which is Jesus prayed for his followers then and his followers now. So that's us, got prayed for. And then we pick up the narrative in John chapter 18, and he is betrayed by Judas. He is arrested. Uh, he is taken before um, the high priest Caiaphas and then through the, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And we kind of left it as a bit of a sort of a cliffhanger, what's going to happen next just before Christmas, and we're now going to dive into chapter 19, and effectively what we're going to look at today is the whole of chapter 19, and basically this is the death of Jesus. This is the end of his earthly life, and the big idea of what we're going to be looking at this week and next week is that the death, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of the Christian faith. Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of the Christian faith, and it affects everybody. It's not something just for Christians, it's for everybody all over the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's so important. The Apostle Paul writes in the book um, to the church in Corinth. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He said, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus and his death on the cross. It was that important, that much of a big deal. At the end of that same letter, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And so the death of Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. It's the most important event linked with the resurrection we'll look at next week. And so we're going to be taking some time to sort of go through this. And as we look at this, we're going to look at three things John uh, wanted his um, followers to know. The first one was that Jesus was wrongly condemned. So let's pick it up, verse, uh, number, verse 1. I'm just going to read that first section of John 19. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, because I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, You will... You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was a day of preparation for the, of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to, him, said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over, them over to be crucified. Okay. Jesus was wrongly condemned to die. That's our first thing. First thing, he was beaten and then pronounced innocent. Jesus has been arrested. He's been interviewed by the high priest and Pilate. And it says Pilate then had him flogged. So he'd have stripped him. They'd have hung him up by his arms to a post. And they would have whipped him with a whip that would have had bits of kind of bone and metal in it. So as it went into the flesh and they pulled it off, it would literally rip the skin off his back. Um, there are kind of accounts of people dying from this, just this alone. There are accounts of people, the skin being ripped from their back to the point where you could see the internal organs. And so he was beaten. It said after he was flogged, it said they got the guys um, together, the, 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 the lads from the army, the squaddies, and they made him a crown of thorns uh, from a date palm. That Sometimes the thorns on the date palm kind of go up to about 12 inches long. That's the longest, but so they're, they're long. They're not little rose ones, they're long. They kind of bound it into a sort of a, a tight ball and they jammed it on his head, which would have caused him to bleed, have been excruciating, painful. Then they punched him in the face repeatedly, the garrison. They'd line him up and they'd have just beaten him. And they'd have put a, a purple robe on him to kind of mock as the king and said, oh, you're the king. We bow down before you. Bang! And they'd have taken him terms and they'd have just pounded him into the floor. And after that horrific ordeal, Pilate brings him out and says, he's innocent. He's innocent. He says, I find, I find no guilt in which is a kind of peculiar form of justice, having seen what they've just done to him. And he brings him out before the crowd uh, who are there, and he actually says, he says, um, this is, you know, the soldiers have proclaimed he's your king in an ironic way, but unbeknownst to them, they've actually spoken the truth. He brings him out, this broken, defeated man, showing how harmless he is, because he must have looked a right old mess when he'd been standing there before them. 
being pummeled and flogged and wearing this robe and these crown of thorns. And he basically says, here is the man, which is the irony of his words, is that Jesus was the man, the word made flesh, it says in John chapter 1. He is the perfect sinless son of God. And he just pronounces before them, this man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong. The way the Bible describe would say he would sin less. He was perfect. He hadn't done anything wrong. They couldn't find anything to stick to him. There was no accusation. Yet he had been treated like this. And then what we see is we see this political maneuvering between the, um, the kind of the Jewish religious authorities because they have an agenda. And you've got Pilate kind of trying to walk his line with his agenda. And, and they want him dead. And they, they kind of cry out, crucify him. They say that the punishment for sedition, kind of trying to undermine Roman rule, was death. And they want that for him. They think, that's what Jesus is doing. We're going to, we want him dead. We want him, we want him undermined. We want him killed. And they said, if you're not going to kind of do it by your law, Pilate, we're going to appeal to our own law. They said, if he claims to be the Son of God, we've got to kill him. That's from Leviticus. Anyone proclaims that? They, said, they, they quote their own law to Pilate and say, the consequences of what he said, we should, he should die. Pilate knows that he's done nothing wrong. And he tries to get out of it. He tries to maneuver it. And so they try something else. They say, well, actually, if you, if you let this guy go who proclaims to be a king... You're no friend of Caesar. Hits him right where it hurts, his political kind of cloud, his political ambition. He suddenly gets afraid, thinking, actually, if this word gets back to Caesar, that I'm letting this king go around kind of unopposed, this could go bad for me. Because Roman justice worked both ways. He could find himself being sent a letter to say, you know, go and deal with yourself, and he'll, have to, he'll go off and be executed as well. So he's suddenly under fear of what's going to happen to him. And then it says that the Jewish leaders proclaim... An incredible thing. Because Pilate says, here's your king. And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. It's amazing what sin and bitterness can make you do. These guys were so hell-bent on killing Jesus that they proclaimed the person they hated the most, Caesar who represented the Roman oppression, the Roman rule of their land, the ones they wanted to get rid of, the ones they couldn't stand. The only good Roman was a dead one. As far as they're concerned, they, they got to a point where they're saying, our only king is Caesar. They reject their rightful king, the one who's come from heaven, the one they claim to worship, and say, actually, we only serve Caesar. Caesar is our king. Kill him. Kill him. Their, 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 kind of their bitterness has led them to this point where they're making crazy statements and they're saying, actually, we only serve we only serve Caesar. And, in, and through it all, what we see is that God is in control. We see Jesus as innocent, despite what he's facing. We see these political movements on the part of the Jewish leaders and part of Pilate, trying to kind of outwit each other, put each other down. Pilate doesn't want to give them what they want just out of spite. They want to kill Jesus. They've got an agenda. And in the middle of it, Pilate goes to Jesus and sort of says, you know, look, look what's going on. I can... I can let you go. And Jesus doesn't want to talk to him. And he says, I've got this authority to let you go or crucify you. Now, if I put that decision before each of you and said, look, I've got authority over your life. You've got two choices. Do you want to go free or do you want to be crucified? It's not a, not a difficult choice, is it? Let me think about that one. Which way shall I go? But Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you from above. That means the authority you have, Pilate, that you think you can take my life you think you can kill me or let me go, that's only been given from above. That comes from God. God is sovereign. God is in control of this thing. God is working this out. And Jesus himself being God the Son, said, I'm in complete control of this. 
You think you've beaten me because that's what you want to do? I've let you do that because I'm God and I'm working all things out. He says, so we have this thing of God's response, God's sovereignty over everything, but behind it we also have man's responsibility. We're not, we're not sort of, um, we're not kind of let off our actions. And he says to him, actually, what you're doing, you're guilty of. But there's, there's others who have who, who grow a greater responsibility, those who've handed me over to you, he's referring to the Jewish leaders, maybe particularly Caiaphas, the high priest who kind of orchestrated this. He's saying, actually, that, that there, there is blame there as well. You can't kind of be absolved of that, but actually, I'm in control of all of this. And you think you're, you're running the show, but you're not. And at the end of that section, what do we have? We have, he's been delivered over to crucifixion. The Jewish leaders get their way. Um, Pilate gives in through fear, cowardice, and just lets them have it and actually sentences this man to die. But amongst it all, we have Jesus who is in full control of what's going on. So we have Jesus, he was wrongly condemned. He was innocent, even his judge proclaimed that, yet he was led out to die. The second thing we're going to see is that Jesus was in total control of his own death. Let's carry on reading verse, sort of end of verse 16, verse 17. It says, so they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took up his garments and divided him into four parts. One part for each soldier, also the tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the other soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the, to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. Then Jesus received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was in complete control of his own death. God is sovereign. Jesus was sovereign. No one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid it down. We can see it here. He was taken out. Uh, to the cross, he would have been carrying the cross piece of the um, of the cross, the sort of the crossbar, the actual cross pole would have been there at the place of execution. So they made him as the ultimate kind of humiliation to carry your own mode of execution with him. They would have led him out through the crowds. Uh, other gospels tell us actually he was so weak through loss of blood and the beating that he couldn't even carry that. They actually grabbed someone out of the crowd, someone of Cyrene, to carry it for him. So he's taken to the place of execution. He would have been laid down on this crossbeam. They'd have driven nails through his wrists to hold him there. On the other side, then he would have been hoisted up um, onto the cross. They'd have driven another nail through his ankles. So his body would have been turned on its side, driven through, and to hold him in place. And he would have just hung there in agony. It said they took two others, 
So you have the thieves, criminals, and did them either side. So there would have been three of them up there, and it would have been a place where people would have passed by and seen it to jeer and mock, but also to be warned, I guess, by the Romans. This is what happens if you step out of line. And it was a place of incredible pain, agony, and suffering. At that point, apparently, there was, there was no word to describe the pain that someone felt on the cross, so they invented one. And we have kind of its derivative, excruciating. It means from the cross. It actually, there was, they, they thought, like, we need a new word because it's just so bad. So they made this word excruciating um, to describe the pain and suffering. And basically, they were left there to die, which could have taken days, days and days. And eventually, what killed them would have been some sort of, of asphyxiation. They would have suffocated because... They, there was a small kind of footpiece on the cross where they could use them to hoist themselves up or use the, the, the nail that was through their ankles as a kind of as a, as a point to stand up so they could breathe. But eventually their strength would give out, their lungs would kind of crush as their body fell forward. They'd have no strength to hold themselves and they would suffocate and die. It was not a pleasant thing. It was perfected by the Romans as an exquisite, uh, vicious way of killing people. And um, this is what Jesus is going through at this point, along with the others. And it says, while he's um, going through this, it says, what was standard practice was that the guys who got to do the, you know, the, on the execution detail, kind of their perk of their job, was they got the stuff of the prisoner. They got their clothes. And they would divide it up. There's clear there was four of them. They divided it up, but they found Jesus' tunic, his outer garment, was one piece. And they said, well, we could cack it into four and have a bit each. But let's not do that. Let's cast lots to decide. So they would have rolled dice or something to find out whose number came up, and they would have got it, and the other three would have missed out. But it says there in verse 24 that they did this to fulfill the Scripture. Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years beforehand, talked about um, them dividing up garments and casting lots. And this was a fulfillment. In Jesus' death, he was fulfilling Old Testament scripture. He was fulfilling prophecy. That psalm, Psalm 22, actually starts with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other famous words spoken by Jesus from the cross, not recorded in John's gospel, recorded in others. But Jesus is fulfilling that psalm even in the moment that he's dying. They cast it up. It goes on later when it says that there was this, he said he thirsts to fulfill the scripture and a, star, a jar of sour and wine vinegar was um, given to him to drink. That fulfills Psalm 69. 69. And so what we've got here, we've got Jesus actively fulfilling prophecies that were spoken hundreds of years before. If we study our Bibles and we, we kind of look at the commentaries, we tell them that in Jesus' life and particularly his death, he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. Some very specific, some about where he was born which is very hard to fulfill a prophecy about where you're born because you don't have any say in that whatsoever. About where he's born, things that would happen about his parentage, being born of a virgin, his life, and particularly his death, the point of his death. And so when Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies shows how much control he had over the situation. People think, the Romans think, oh, we're killing this criminal. The Jewish leader's thinking, we're wiping out this enemy who's just causing us problems. But Jesus is saying, this is all part of the plan. This is all part of the plan. I know what's happening. I know what's going on. If we go back to the beginning of John, think about how John's gospel begins. It says, in the beginning, which means eternity past, before, before the earth was created, before any of this existed that we see, in the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus, I was there before this even came to being, and we, we, we set something in motion, and it says the Word then became flesh 
and dwelt amongst us. So God came to earth as a man and lived. So this is nothing, I'm not being caught out by anything here. I know exactly what's going on. And even when people are doing the most horrific things you could ever do to someone, physically, I'm in control. I'm working this out. It's all going according to plan. And even in the midst of it, in the midst of this excruciating suffering, if you can kind of put yourself on what that must be like, what Jesus does. He says there's there's some women standing at the cross who followed him. The disciples, the guys, all seem to have done a runner, most of them. And he looks at them and he sees his mum. His mum's there. And he says he sees another disciple there who's kind of obliquely referred to as disciple Jesus loved. That's John, the guy who wrote this. So this is an eyewitness account, just to put that out there. Someone saw this and wrote this. And he says, as he's dying in excruciating pain, he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mum. Even in his death, he's taking care of his mum. He's making sure that's covered. That's... How in control is that? I'm fulfilling scripture. Oh yeah, I've just, while in the midst of all this, mum, you're going to be looked after. They didn't have pension schemes then. There wasn't, you know, state governance or anything. He needed, she needed someone to look after her. She would have been getting old. John, look after my mum. Um, John, you know, looking at his saviour dying. Yeah, I've got her. I'll look after her. She can come into her home. We'll provide for her to make sure that she is all right. And then after that, it's almost like Jesus is like, I feel, feel prophecies. Mum sorted, fulfill another prophecy, and then how does it word it at the end? Verse 30. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus chose the moment of his death. It wasn't taken from him. He wasn't killed by the Roman soldiers in that sense. He chose to die, and he chose exactly when it was going to happen. He gave up his spirit to be with his father. So Jesus was in total control of his own death. Last one. Jesus really did die. John hammers this home in the last section. Verse 31. It says, Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain up on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two, of the first and of the other, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his, broken, one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as with the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden was a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Number three, Jesus really did die. First off, there was an eyewitness there, John. Even kind of, we've looked at it there, the disciple Jesus loved, but even there and there he says, that, you know, there's, he who saw this as born witness. John's talking about himself as a gospel writer. I saw this, I was there. This isn't hearsay, 
I'm telling you what happened here. It says, this, and we can also see the soldiers made sure. These guys were professional killers. They knew what they were doing. They were hardened Roman soldiers. When it came to crucifying and killing people, they were experts. So they would make sure that the guys were dead and that they couldn't escape or anything. They, they, they were dead. And so what they would do is they'd leave them on the cross and said, well, we've got to take the bodies down. So as if it wasn't cruel enough what they were doing, they came with a, a mallet or hammer and just shattered their legs. That, that, that actually didn't kill them. That just meant they couldn't breathe because they couldn't hold themselves up, so they would slowly suffocate. I mean, it was horrific what they did, but they were like, right, we've got to take these bodies down. Let's just smash their legs. Then they'll suffocate, expire, and we'll see that. They did that to the first one, did that to the, sec- uh, the other criminal, and they come to Jesus, and actually, oh, he's already dead. He's not, he's not actually alive. He's not still in agony. Oh, that's a, okay, but we, we want to make sure. You know, we can't have him, we can't, we can't have him get away, you know, him kind of calling and someone coming to try and escape or anything. So they get their spear and they don't give him a prod, they ram it into him. Because if he was still alive, he would react somehow. <laughs> if you've got a spear thrust in you, there would be a yelp or something, some kind of physical reaction. So they ram it up inside him, up here, and it says that uh, blood and water flow. Now, this is a medical thing. I don't claim to understand it, but lots of medical doctors say that when you die, often your blood can separate, and you kind of, when it looks, appears like blood and water can flow out of the body. And so it's evidence that of Jesus' actual death, these soldiers make sure this was death, and this extra kind of piece of information that John saw, blood and water, actually, he really was dead. Jesus was dead. And even in that... He's fulfilling more Old Testament prophecies. I mean, that is skillful, isn't it? Being dead and still fulfilling the Old Testament. Jesus has given up his spirit and still it says that no bones would be broken. It says that as a fulfillment of Psalm 34, another psalm. They said they would not break any of his bones. And so Jesus, the other two got it, but he didn't. And so actually that's pretty impressive. And then it talks about them being pierced in Zechariah 12. Actually, they pierced. He had that spear, the spear um, in him, which the other two didn't have. And so there's a greater fulfillment. And then once they've taken the body down, he's dead. He says, you've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We met Nicodemus in chapter 3, who came to question Jesus. He obviously, he, at the time in chapter 3, he was searching, he was a skeptic, he wasn't quite sure. It seems something's happened in his life, and he's now a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And it says, he brought a whacking great amount of spices to cover the smell of a, a dead, a decaying body. Um, and actually, and they wrapped him in these kind of cloths and laid him in a tomb um, because it was the Sabbath. And they wanted to take the body down and get it all done, and the tomb was very close nearby, so they put him in this new tomb. And John's setting up for what's going to happen in chapter 20, and we see the resurrection. But all this goes to show Jesus did die. Some people have these kind of ideas, you know, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He escaped, and he, you know, he went and lived with Mary Magdalene and all this other ridiculous stuff. Jesus died. He was dead. And they all saw it. And this is important to, to hammer home because when we look at next week, when we look at the resurrection, the, the reaction to Jesus coming back from death is truly stunning for them because they know he died. It wasn't like he was just hiding out. Actually, you know, he was dead and gone. And the despair of that kind of that day, die on the Friday, there would have been the Saturday when he, they would have just think he's gone. And then, then the joy of Sunday when he has returned, Jesus really did die and John wants to kind of make sure that we as the readers get that so when we plow into the resurrection we kind of get that awesomeness of actually 
Jesus has come back from the dead. All right, three things I just want to just point out of application and then we will close. First one, Jesus was condemned so we don't have to be. Jesus was condemned so we don't have to be. Jesus was innocent. Even Pilate said that, who had no love for him whatsoever. He was innocent. He was guiltless. He was sinless. The same can't be said about us. The Bible says that we are guilty, we are flawed, we are marred by sin. Every facet of our character and life is somehow corrupted by sin. The Bible says we're born of sin. Um, if you want kind of to think about this, evidence of this, have children. You don't have to teach them to be bad. They just, they know. They are, they are intrinsically wired to be selfish and mean and, and, and they can just do it. You know, you say, who taught you to do that? To whack your brother in the head, you know, and, and nick his toys. You, know, you, I don't know, you can't see that from me, kind of thing, you know, <laughs> obviously. But you don't have to do that. But and also think about your own life. Think, well, maybe I, I don't have kids or I don't see kids a lot. Think about your own life. Think about if we got the screen up here and we played the thoughts of your heart, those deep things that you think about those kind of attitudes you have, the ones that we're far too polite let come out of our mouth, but boy, we think about them. And if you start dwelling on it, just think about the ones you've done the last week, the way you've thought about your boss or your spouse or your friends or just, or just things you've just kind of, mm, you should start feeling a little bit uncomfortable because actually if we all saw them, we'd all know how guilty you are. And the reality is we are guilty and it's not just, we're not just guilty at our worst, we're actually guilty at our best. Even when we put on our best behavior and pull out our best actions, they're still tinged by guilt and selfishness and just kind of self-righteousness and, and self-seeking. And actually, even at our best, we still mess things up. And as a result, we are guilty before God's perfect standard. The Bible said God is holy. That's the word that's used most often to describe God. In terms of sheer number, he is holy. It means he is set apart. It means he is other. It means he is above. It means he is different to us in its fundamental nature. The Bible often describes him as holy, 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 emphasizing the point. Repetition brings emphasis to what they're saying. So he's holy, holy, holy. He is so far above us. He is so different to us. And as we stand before that, we suddenly realize how unholy we are. And how guilty we are before him because he is perfect in every way. And we all know in, instinctively that if someone is guilty, they need to be punished. Think about what we've seen on the news over the last couple of weeks. Horrific terrorist attacks. We've heard stories about people doing horrible things to one another. And one of our reactions as we read that is desire to find the guilty and punish them. They need to be punished for what they did. What they did was evil and wrong. And so we all know that we, the, punish, uh, the guilty might need to be punished. But then the great irony of that is we're the guilty before God. We've rebelled before a holy God. We've rebelled before perfect standards. We don't measure up to him. We are God-belittling, self-righteous sinners, the Bible says. We're the ones who want to rule the world. We're the ones who want to rule our lives. We're the ones who want to have a say in everything and not recognize God in anything. In fact, we want him out of it. We don't want him here. And so... Before God, we deserve punishment. That's the good, bad news. Let's look at the good news. Jesus took our place. Jesus was innocent. 
He was innocent. Pilate said that. The Bible says that. We know that. Jesus was innocent, yet he took our place. Through Jesus, and only through Jesus, which we've sung about, we can know freedom from guilt. We can know freedom from punishment. We can know freedom from shame. We can find forgiveness for the things we've done. Because ultimately, the person we've offended is God. And we can find freedom from that. The Bible calls it justification, not guilty. We can stand before a holy God, and because Jesus has taken our place and he's taken our punishment as the innocent party, we can stand before God not guilty. Not on our own merits, which we so often try and add to. If I'm good, if I'm kind, if I give to charity, help the old lady across the road, be nice to my kids, you know, don't do anything really bad. We can be all right before God, but even those don't count. Even those don't make, make the deal because all the things that stack up against it. But because of Jesus, we can know um, freedom. We can know forgiveness. We don't have to be condemned. And I, don't, I know from my story, when I became a Christian, I remember the day when it hit me that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I'd lived my life as a self-righteous Pharisee who who knew he wasn't as bad as everyone else because they were all horrible and I was much better than that. I was kinder than them. I was nicer than them. I was just generally a good person and I could follow God based on that, based on my own merits. And I remember having the kind of, the revelation, the realization that even my good deeds were just nothing compared towards a holy God and having that sense of, oh crumbs, (laughs) I'm guilty. I am so guilty, and it was crushing. It was crushing to realize that all the effort I put in would bring me nowhere, would bring me to nothing. But then the grace of God came and said, actually, (laughs) I've paid for that. You don't have to have a righteousness of your own. I've got it for you, God said. You don't have to kind of measure up to a standard. I've already measured up for you. You can have your righteousness in me, Jesus said. I can give you forgiveness. You can be in me. That's what the Bible, becoming a Christian, the Bible calls you in Christ. You can be in Christ. You can have the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. You can approach God as Jesus would, with right standing before him. And it was an incredibly liberating time. So Jesus was condemned, so we don't have to be. The second one, Jesus was in control, so we don't have to be. When you look at the cross, the horrific, the horror of what happened there... God is in control. Jesus is running the show as the condemned and the victim. He's running the show with the people who are trying to put him down, the Jewish leaders, Pilate. Even when they're killing him, he's like, I've got this under control. I'm in control of this. And for us here as believers, I don't know what situation you're facing. I don't know what, how your life is working out right now. I don't know what you're going through. But I want to say to you, God is in control. He's in control. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your financial situation is like. I don't know what your work situation is like. I don't know what your personal relational situation is like. I don't know what your health situation is like. But I know God is in control, which is a good thing because God is good and God is holy and God is right. And whatever we find ourselves facing today, I would probably put before you it's not as bad as Christ on the cross. It's not that bad. I mean, it might be horrible for you, whatever it is, and it can feel overwhelming, but I want to say to you, God is in control. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know whether, you know, will it will work out very quickly, or it might take years, years and years, 
It might never be worked out fully in this lifetime, but I know God has got it in control. And God is sovereign and God is good. And God will work things out for his purpose and his glory and ultimately you're good. And God has shown it. Well, he can do it with his, with his own life, his own death. He can do it with your life and everything that you hold today. And I know for our story coming here, planting the church, starting all this, there were many times when life felt out of control for us. It felt scary. When we moved up here, I had kind of half a job, a couple of days for church, trying to find other work, teaching, supply teaching. We had, um, we had to rent a house because we couldn't afford to buy one. I think we ever going to be able to afford to buy one because... Um, of our income, we had problems with uh, finances, actually, how are we going to pay for this, that so we had to trust God. We had children, we had two children. Trying to raise children is a, an exercise in <laughs> trusting God, and actually, oh my goodness, what's going on? They don't, it's one of the most amazing responsibilities in the world, raising children, and they don't give you a manual, and they don't send you on a course. I mean, they just give you a child. I remember leaving the hospital with both our kids thinking, is that it? I mean, seriously, we just leave with them and we're now responsible with this other human being? I mean, it's just, it's terrifying. But um, God is in control of those situations. I remember when we, um, we bought the house we live in, God was gracious to us. We, we bought a house and, and we really felt it was the right one, but actually it's not near a particular school. And so actually it's like, are we ever going to get our kids into school because it's such a pressure and you've got to be close to the school and da da da. And we went through this whole, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Are they going to be sent to a school the other side of the city because that's the only place they've got a place for because we can't get him one to close? And we had to kind of give that over to God and God worked it out. But there was a sense of actually, God, you're in control and I need to give stuff over to you. So whatever the situation you're facing today, I just want to say to you, God is in control. I can't guarantee what, how he's going to work it out. I do know he's good. I know he loves you. And I know ultimately he's got his hands on its situation. And ultimately he will work it out for your good. And I want you to take heart in that, whatever you're facing today. And the last one, Jesus died so we don't have to. Jesus died so we don't have to. We all know wrong must be punished. We also know that God is holy. And when you offend a holy, perfect, righteous God, the only punishment is death. And it's not just actual physical death, like killing someone. It actually, it's, it's eternal death. It's separation from God in all his forms, all his goodness, all his love, his grace, his kindness, his mercy. The Bible just calls that hell. It's approaching God in anger and wrath, eternal separation from the goodness of God. And this is something that we all rightly deserve. All of us do. All of us deserve to be separated from God's goodness forever. But because Jesus paid it, we don't have to. We don't have to die in that sense. That's good news. Really? That's good. <laughs> it's good news. You're still looking at me like this. Let's get over the death bit into the good news stuff. That is good news. And that's the fundamental of what it means to become a Christian. It means becoming Christians of recognizing that actually Jesus took my place. He took the punishment I deserved. He was condemned, so I don't have to be condemned. He took the guilt that I should face. He should take the punishment I should face. Ultimately, he died the death I should die, the things that I have done. And he did it in my place, so I don't have to. I can stand free from that, free from the impending kind of wrath of God that's being stored up for all the things I've done because it's already been poured out on someone else. And it's already been poured out on Jesus. And because Jesus, Jesus was sinless and perfect, he paid the price for all of us. So it's not just for me, there's more than one. You, you too. If you're a believer here, he paid the price for you. If 
you become a Christian, he paid the price for you. He died for you on that day. If you're not a believer here, I want to offer you the opportunity that if you want to become to know Jesus, you want to become a Christian today, that's what it means. That's what it means, accepting what Jesus has done for you, accepting what he's done in your place. There's nothing you can add to it. You can't bring something to it. You can't bargain with it. You just have to accept it. You are guilty. You deserve punishment. Jesus has taken your place. And you just need to accept that. Put your faith and trust in that and take that for yourself by faith. And that means to follow Jesus out of that for the rest of your life. So let's respond. When you stand up, got a couple of things I want us to just process as we finish. Ban, do you want to come? How do we respond to this? Maybe you just want to close your eyes. The first thing, the way we respond to it, is it should be a cause to celebrate. We're going to sing in a moment and we're going to celebrate God together and what he's done. And hopefully what I've shared today should rise something in you of joy and wonder at the grace of God. That he saved you. He pulled you out of the place where you were dead, you were lost, you were under a place of his wrath, his judgment, his punishment. And he said, I'm going to save you. And that should just celebrate and we should enjoy that for the rest of our life. It should also, if you're here today and you're facing something, that situation that you can't control. Kind of one of the biggest crimes of Christians is trying to control everything themselves. We're all guilty of trying to make it all work out in our own strength. And and God says, I'm in control. If you're one of those people, I'd love you just to take a moment to give it to God now. And I recognize that's a hard thing, because whatever you're facing, you may think it's big or small, but, but when you're in the moment, it seems overwhelming. It seems huge. It seems like there's a mountain before you that you can't see the top of, and you think, is it going to crush me? Is it going to destroy me, my family, my kids? My... What's it going to do? What's it going to do to my faith? And I, I just encourage you here in a moment to just reaffirm that truth, that God is in control. God is in control, and he's good, and he loves you. And ultimately what he's going to do is work it out for your goodness and your, um, your good and his glory. And the last thing, if you're not a Christian here, you need to become a Christian. <laughs> you absolutely need to. It is an absolute priority. It should be number one on your list to explore the claims of Jesus and, and decide for yourself what, you know, how you're going to respond to that. Because it's just, it'll be the best decision you ever made. It's also the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. So if you're not a believer here, I'd love to chat with you at the end. What that means, just come and grab me. But as for us, as those of you believers who love Jesus, who serve him, I want us to celebrate now. So I'm just going to pray and I'll hand over to Matt and the guys and they're going to lead us in worship. Lord God, I want to thank you that you went to the cross. I want to thank you that you went in my place, Lord. I want to thank you you came to earth, lived a perfect life and died that most horrible death for me that I don't have to, that I don't have to be condemned, I don't have to be died, I don't have to experience judgment, I don't have to experience hell. I, <laughs> you did that all for me. Lord, I thank you that I stand clothed in your righteousness now, that I can come before you boldly, make requests, pray prayers, just enjoy your presence because of what you've done. And Lord God, I thank you that you are in control, that you are working all things for our good and your glory, uh, Lord Jesus. And whatever I'm facing right now, God, whatever's happening in my life, Lord, I just hand that over to you. I hand over to you my relationships, my job, my job security, my finances, my children, my health, 
um, the problems that I'm just I'm carrying that I can't see through, Lord. And I say, you are God and you are good. And I let you take them from me, Lord Jesus. Lord, we want to say we love you, we praise you. And God's people said, 